my name is Robert Horton, and I'm a yeah I'm a film critic and film historian um, in Seattle. I write for the Seattle Weekly, uh, teach film at Seattle University. Uh, I've written for over 25 years for Film Comment magazine, published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. I uh, do a bunch of other things, lecture and and uh, get up and talk about film. Did a Fulbright uh, to Romania last year, where I was uh, on the verge of the Dracula mythology, which sometimes uh, abuts with the Frankenstein mythology, at least in movies. And I, I wrote this book about Frankenstein for uh, for Wallflower Press and uh, Columbia University Press. And I don't know, one of the reasons that I wrote it was that I've, uh, for one thing, I was thinking, what would I like to spend a year uh, researching and writing about? Uh, what would I really enjoy? And I thought about Frankenstein, and I thought about the... Uh, the fascination that that uh, mythology has had for for me and and for uh, so many people over the years, and I thought it would be a really enjoyable way to to spend some uh, some research and writing time, and so that's why I did it. And I it was the the book is I should say is kind of centers on the 1931 film uh, directed by James Whale, starring Boris Karloff. My intention was to to draw a a large net around the idea of Frankenstein. So. Looking at Mary Shelley's book, looking at how that came from being a publishing phenomenon to a movie in 1931, and then what's happened to it since then, in terms of the way that the the image and the idea of Frankenstein has has uh, gone everywhere from um, many many sequels in film to uh, to the stage to to comic books to breakfast cereals to action figures, you name it. I thought all of that was was interesting fodder and uh, so that was kind of the impetus for it and it was it turned out to be a, a great experience writing this book um, and I'm, I'm still really really interested in in the mythology to me the the the, the most essential thing about Shelley's uh, book and why it might have stayed in the public imagination for so long is that uh, she brilliantly uh, came upon and developed an idea that is both very very complex too. It's beautifully fundamental in a way. Uh, some of the, the ideas of the book, of uh, the impulse to create, the impulse to uh, give birth, the the incredible uh, metaphor that that um, you cannot turn on the. If you watch the news every night for a week, you will hear it at least once of uh, of a Frankenstein's monster being loosed upon the world. This metaphor of something that gets created where the creator has not thought through the consequences and the creation uh, goes on and, and, and gets out of the control of the creator. And what happens when that, when that happens? And it's, you know, it's one of those things that once you think of it, you think, well, of course, that's, in a way, that's very simple. That's, a, that's a, a sturdy metaphor, but it was so beautifully developed by Shelley uh, that, uh, that it, it's just this all-purpose thing, and it keeps coming up, and it keeps coming up in art, and it keeps coming up in the news, and it uh, keeps coming up in science, of course. And also, you know, the other thing, it's a very forward-looking uh, book. She was, uh, she was raised in an intellectual household. She was uh, uh, full of ideas. I sometimes think that uh, the book, and, and certainly the movies that, that um, are, descend from it, are, are, are so often described as being uh, uh, horror movies, and that maybe Shelley wrote the first horror novel or whatever, but in a sense, it it is it is prop, probably more properly science fiction, 
because she was drawing from the, the most current science ideas of her time. Uh, she had clearly looked into it a lot and thought about it a lot. Um, you know, ideas about uh, electricity and galvanism and, and um, how, how would you actually uh, revive dead pieces of people if you could? And there's enough in the book to, where you're, you're sort of convinced that, yes, this, fa as fantastic as it seems, this, this might actually work. This might actually uh, be something. And it, it's a, it's a forward-looking book. And, and so many of the, the movies um, that have come along since then, whether they've been exact Frankenstein spin-offs or you know, robot movies or more recently AI movies um, have, have touched on that, that idea of what's next, what, what, what will mankind do um, next in science, and what will it make us? What will, what will what we create turn us into? And it's just, that's so sturdy and it's so open-ended. And you've seen the results of how open-ended that is, you know, that, of so many incarnations of, of her idea. Well, she was this fascinating individual, and she's written up, been written about so much. Um, she was um, the daughter of two extremely forward-looking people. Her mother, um, before her times, a uh, feminist author and, and activist, and her father, a, a writer of philosophy and, and other novels. So she w was raised in a, a really rich environment. Of course, uh, everybody there probably knows that she then eventually ran off with an, an already uh, fairly well-known poet, uh, Percy Shelley, and, and would, um, would eventually marry him. Biographically speaking, it's always a source of in, in interest to uh, people when they're talking about Frankenstein, that, that Mary Shelley uh, was born and her mother died from complications from childbirth almost immediately. And the fact that the novel is so obsessed with, with birth and with... Um, uh, parenting, <laughs> bad, bad parenting, you might say, in the case of uh, Dr. Frankenstein, but uh, that that somehow haunts the book. Uh, Mary Shelley herself, uh, before she wrote Frankenstein, had already had a, a miscarriage, and um, I think she had uh, given birth successfully, or, or possibly just after. Uh, maybe she had already given birth when, when she wrote Frankenstein. And then, of course, the, the, the um, actual genesis of Frankenstein is also one of those, it's another one of those... Um, branches of her book that has kind of taken on its, on its own life and its own mythology, which is how Frankenstein was conceived, how it was given birth uh, later uh, during a, a summer in, in 1816 when she and, and Shelley and uh, Lord Byron and a couple of other people uh, spent a summer where the skies were uh, blackened and the weather was terrible because of a volcano that had gone off uh, halfway around the world earlier that year. And so, to amuse themselves, came up with horror stories, uh, or, or the possibility of, of writing one. She was uh, the person who wrote the most lasting and the best of those, and it was, of course, Frankenstein. Um, but that, it, it's, it's amazing that that story in itself has become a kind of freestanding part of, of this mythology, and people have made movies about that, about the, the summer that they spent together. There were three movies that came out within five years of each other in the late 1980s. Uh, so the, the terribly romantic uh, notion of these great geniuses getting together and hatching artistic ideas and, and, and so on um, is, is a really powerful part of it. Um, her, uh, Percy Shelley, of course, died a few years after uh, that summer of, of Frankenstein, uh, but Mary lived for quite a few years after that and, and remained... Frankenstein was a best-selling book 
and was almost immediately adapted for the stage, which helped give it uh, even more um, renown and, and longer life. And she lived uh, quite a quite a long time that after that as as a as a renowned author and continued to continue to write. A remarkably accomplished uh, uh, person. Did I say that the, the summer was 1816? Yeah, and the book was published in 1818. Uh, that's the chronology. The the well the movie that that helped spawn the whole um, tradition of Frankenstein as a, as a movie monster franchise was the 1931 film. That one did not come out of uh, uh, the blue. It was based on a stage adaptation that had been uh, quite successful, you know, one of those uh, really tried and true uh, theatrical properties that could be barnstormed around anywhere, and it had this, you know, everybody knew the title, so it was popular and, and, and uh, came from a, a romantic tradition. Uh, I think that the 1931 film, which uh, discovered Boris Karloff, the actor, playing the monster, and was directed by this, this uh, well, Karloff was English, and so was uh, the, the director, James Whale, who was kind of a hot property at that moment, and who, who elected to do Frankenstein because he thought it was the most dramatic uh, of the possibilities. Um, and it turned, the movie was a huge hit, and, and of course... Uh, paved the way for all these other other films that came along. They have been from the sublime to the ridiculous, of course. Uh, Whale himself directed a film in 1935 that I, I hope everybody has seen called Bride of Frankenstein, which which has some of the iconography of, of the Frankenstein uh, cinema legend with the bride herself uh, in, in uh, incredible makeup. And that film, all these films have their own individual uh, stamp. That movie is actually very campy, and it has been... Um, deservedly, um, you know, taken up by queer studies uh, because James Whale was a, was a gay man who was mostly out in Hollywood, uh, not, not publicly or anything, but uh, amongst, the, uh, amongst his colleagues, certainly. And the film, Bride of Frankenstein, just goes for it. It, it is a very funny film, very tongue-in-cheek at times, um, playing with all kinds of gay references. Um, it, it's, it's a remarkable movie, very fun. Um, I think there's a whole cycle of films that were made in England in the 1950s and 60s, uh, made by Hammer Films, famous horror movie studio, that that um, have a, a Dr. Frankenstein who is played by Peter Cushing, who's one of the least likable of the Frankenstein, the, the doctors that is in the uh, in the movies. He's more of a, but uh, he's he's pretty uptight. But um, those two, you know, in, inevitably. Um, Kind of shed light on England in the 1950s and 60s, as 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 much as they do uh, the Frankenstein mythology. You can look at stuff like you know the Rocky Horror Picture Show. In a way, is a is a direct descendant of Frankenstein too. And the the uh, the drag queen at the heart of it is is uh, uh, has has some of the Frank Frankenstein um, uh, iconography surrounding him and and so on. Uh, and for some reason, it. Uh, Frankenstein has entered pop culture in a way that has turned, it's interesting because it kind of turns the monster from a, a figure of fear, as it was in, in so many of the early adaptations, to um, something much more uh, approachable and, and likable. And, and there, there, what, there, there may still be that breakfast cereal called Frankenberry. I don't know if it still exists, but it was around. Uh, and when I was growing up, I liked to put together... Um, some kids had airplane models that you assembled with glue and everything, but, but Universal Pictures had sanctioned these monster models that you could assemble. And I talk about this in my book because it was a, 
important part of my childhood to make the Frankenstein's monster um, and have it right there on your on your bedstand, which is a strange thing if you're if you're a child who's easily scared. I've often wondered if that's about you know bringing in the the, the source of the fear and uh, keeping it close, being able to to manage it that way. And plus, you got to be Doctor Frankenstein because you were literally putting a putting together the pieces of this model and doing what essentially what every Frankenstein has done, creating something out of, out of uh, pieces. It's, a, it's amazing how flexible it's been. It's the, the, the imagery of Frankenstein comes into everything, music videos and, and um, movies that are still being made, TV shows. Uh, Danny Boyle, uh, the Oscar-winning director, did a very well-received uh, stage adaptation of Frankenstein five or six years ago with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller exchanging the roles every night of uh, the Doctor and the Monster, which uh, was a, was a sensational success, and also brings up this interesting idea that the, the Doctor and the Monster are inextricably linked, that they are somehow, you know, the old idea of of, uh, of a shadow self. Um, the, the whole Frankenstein is a is a rich. A uh, topic for you know a psychoanalytic reading and and, and certainly has been many many times. Um, but if you if you do that with the casting, it certainly creates an interesting dynamic uh, between uh, creator and monster. And by the way, just one other thing to take off on the the word monster. I've I've wondered why we do call uh, the monster a monster, and why uh, in, in Shelley's book, you know. Uh, those of those of you who have read it know that the monster becomes quite articulate and is is a very intellectually curious person and struggles perhaps with um, emotional development maybe but but is clearly uh, someone who is is capable of being uh, of of developing and and uh, and even of entering society were it not for what we are told is a is a hideous uh, appearance and. Um, why? Why is that the monster? Why? Why? Why doesn't he have a name? Um, is he a he or an it? Um, does he have a soul in the old-fashioned sense? Uh, that's a, a question that was central to to Shelley's book and to to many interpreters of it. Lots of different directions you can you can take this in, and um, that that always always to me is is one of the more haunting questions. When you uh, read the novel, there there is a bunch of interesting stuff about. Um, the science that might have gone into uh, how this actually would have worked to bring um, to bring a, a new person to life out of out of some dead pieces, uh, and of course the 1931 film setting the tradition for movies that would that would follow it. You know, Shelley she kind of leaves out the the scene where you would see the Doctor actually creating the monster or the moment when it comes to life. That 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 is happens a little bit off stage, as it were. Whereas the the movie has all these electric gizmos going off and incredible, you know, the thing goes up to the sky and is, is struck by lightning and they're harnessing electricity and all, all that stuff. And uh, James Whale said that he, he did this extravagant scene because he wanted the audience to believe that maybe this could actually happen. You know, maybe you could possibly do this. And you might have to, to work a little harder in the movies and show it rather than uh, what Shelley did in the book. So it's, it's chock full of things like that. I think... Um, we have the, the fact that we've now progressed to the age of uh, where we've come up with you know the term artificial intelligence and the idea of it. It's no longer. I mean, clearly, it's it's a, a limited use of of uh, 
the old uh, grave robbing scenes where people have to go to graveyards and, and dig up bodies and uh, scenes in a medical laboratory where somebody is, is grabbing the brain in the jar. Um, that's, we, we've gotten past that. Uh, and uh, you have movies, really, really interesting films like uh, Ex Machina, which came out a couple of years ago and which to me is one of the more intriguing of the, of the um, uh, artificial intelligence films where obviously it's more robotic and it's, it's made of um, iron and, and, uh, and computer parts. But, it, it, but still, we're, we're, we're getting close to that point where we have AI, not unlike the way that we've progressed with uh, CGI in movies, where AI begins to take on a, um, actual lifelike proportions and, and uh, uh, it can be convincing. And uh, we enter the... Uh, the uncanny valley about where we get really, really close to something that looks lifelike, and yet um, it's not exactly life, or, or, or at what point does it become life? And uh, Ex Machina in particular, I think, is, is uh, a great example because it plays with that idea of how, how we're going to have to deal with issues of, uh, of projection when we create uh, something else. If you remember that film, it's about a, a a poor sap who's a science student who just cannot, who, just, who loses his ability to understand that the, this beautiful young uh, artificial intelligence bot is, uh, is, is, is not human and uh, is in fact something that uh, is a machine that will just exist to replicate itself. And, uh, and he, he pays the price as so many people do in these uh, Frankenstein uh, style scenarios. And we can all, we can, and just to then cast back, you can think about the way that in the book, one of the things that's always struck me about Mary Shelley's book is that the, this, this doctor, this brilliant young student of, of medicine, uh, pulls off the greatest scientific breakthrough uh, in history. You know, he's created life out of nothing. And then when the thing uh, confronts him, he rejects it. And he just, he doesn't want any part of it. Is that because he's seeing, he's projecting, he's projecting the worst uh, aspects of himself onto this thing? Or is it the sheer physical ugliness of, of what we've uh, heard uh, described as a monster or so on? The monster approaches him, you know, wanting to know him and, and uh, as, as a father, as a, as a teacher. And uh, Frankenstein just absolutely, you know, uh, condemns him to, to the vowels of hell or whatever uh, it is. And uh, it's, it's pretty rough treatment. But why does Frankenstein do that? That's, that's one of the open questions that, that lets us in to talking about Frankenstein, I think, and talking about the monster. Um, it's one of the central ones, and I, I keep coming back to it when I think about this stuff. One thing that, that always interests me about um, most of the AI stories that we've had is, is the question of why they are so skeptical and so pessimistic, why they expect us to someday be destroyed by the AI that we've created. And, you know, that isn't inevitable. It, it's certainly possible um, that the, at, at the point where the artificial intelligence uh, surpasses us in its ability to think and to create itself, replicate itself and, and create new AI bots that we, we won't understand anymore, that that could be bad for us because we could be replaced if they feel like replacing us. But um, not necessarily. And, it could, you know, it could be, it could be that... Uh, this really does open up a, 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 a wonderful new world. It's entirely possible. I, I would love to see more scenarios that, that take off on that. One, one of the, the most interesting AI films is the movie that's called AI, 
which was a Stanley Kubrick uh, project for for many years, and he he couldn't he couldn't figure it out because he wanted to do it with an actual uh, robot child. It's about a child that gets adopted into a family, an artificial child. And when Steven Spielberg made the film, he just used an actor who was extraordinary in conveying um, sort of robot-like characteristics. Trying to link it to Shelley, I think that question of confronting something that is incredibly lifelike and that looks like us, and in the case of this film, AI, uh, assumes the role of a family member and expresses love, because it's programmed to express love, is a terrifying spot in the uncanny valley, because as, as Shelley was exploring, when you, the, you know, the only problem is that, the, that uh, we humans uh, know that there's no soul there. Um, or insert whatever word you want for soul. It is uncanny, and it is and in in the film, the uh, the Kubrick slash Spielberg film. It's a, there's a harrowing scene where the mother rejects this child who we've been watching for an hour, so we've gotten used to the fact that he really seems human, um, and and leaves him in the forest uh, to fend for himself. Uh, shocking um, uh, rent in the, the sort of American especially the American tradition of uh, sentimentalizing family and, and, uh, and movies that, that, that do that. And that, that, uh, that just brings us kind of right into this, the, the same rejection that Dr. Frankenstein was doing and, and what we're going to have to deal with if we ever decide to make artificial intelligence that really is quite close to, to being human-looking. It may be easier to go in the other direction. <laughs>